Have we got a show for you? I've no idea what we'll do. Welcome, my friends, to this charming tableau. Have we got a show for you? Hello, everybody. Strangely here. Welcome to this week's episode of Strangely and Friends, the podcast. My name is Strangely. This is the podcast, and uh, the friends are back. I my 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 most exciting piece of news this week, like the, the the big thing that's happening, is I have guests again. I was very careful with my quarantine, and then I did a very careful quarantine transfer down to my friend's place in LA. That's where the boiling hot closet was, and I recorded three interviews because there were three people quarantining there, and I spoke with all of them. So I'm so excited that I have three awesome guest chats to share with you. It's been really fascinating to see how various people are adapting, you know, I, I, because I'm actually moving through the world. I've kind of, I've gone to places where everyone's wearing masks and, and I've driven by places. I haven't gotten out of the car, but I've driven by places where no one is wearing masks. There's, there's all kinds of things going on. You know, I, I know that's, that's very uh, current events and, and generally on this podcast, I don't talk about current events very much, but my guest this week, Catherine Roskam, who is a retired Episcopalian bishop as well as some other things. I won't spoil the surprise of those for when you're actually listening to the interview. She is very passionate about uh, Black Lives Matter and a few other things. So we, we do touch on those in the interview. And, you know, I I created this podcast so that I could I could speak to people with, with all different kind of opinions and and perspectives and and who arrive at their perspectives Sometimes people arrive at the same perspectives as me, but from an entirely different angle or an entirely different uh, origin story for for where they're coming from. And I, I love that. I love finding that you agree with someone, you see eye to eye with them, but you've gotten to that point on an entirely different journey. It's It's just fantastic. Anyway... Let's leave the current zeitgeist for now, and uh, let's get on with the episode. I'm I'm just excited to have guests again because you know I, I it can just be me talking the whole time, but in all honesty, you know I want to I want to use this platform to share other people with you folks listening at home or in your car or in your earbuds as you're running. I I don't know how you listen to this podcast. I'm not going to tell you how to live your life. I mean, sometimes I eat on on microphone, so you know anything could happen. Anyway, uh, let's get to the show. Strangely recommends in 200 words or less, including these 11. Who imposed this rule? How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. If you're curious about how your brain works, you will likely enjoy this book. I've never had much interest in taking psychedelics. I've never really trusted the depths of my own mind, and most opportunities to partake involve people I would rather not be vulnerable around. That aside, this book did more to <clears throat> change my mind than I ever thought possible. Pollen's ever-delightful prose is in full effect here, part psychedelic research history, part Silicon Valley forward-think piece, and part interspace travelogue the disparate elements nevertheless coalesce into a pleasing and informative whole. In much the same way that Pollen realigned my thinking about food, he's now contributed to my examination of the inputs my mind consumes. A telling detail often repeated in this book is the importance of set and setting for psychedelics to provide benefit for mental health. 
This is yet another piece of evidence in the ever-growing pile I've been collecting that seems to indicate, at least to me, that modern life might not be good for our brains. Pass the psilocybin, please. Oh my goodness, I'm so excited to share this chat with you folks. This is Kathy Roscom, who is a retired Episcopal bishop, and she had an interesting career before being an Episcopal bishop, so I'll let her tell you about it in our chat. This is my chat with Kathy Roscom, who was wonderful. Here we go. What is your full name? Because I know it's Kathy, and I just know you yeah. as Kathy, so yes. like, what is your full name? It's Catherine Roskam, R-O-S-K-A-M. Catherine Roskam. Yeah. And you went to the Diocene um, con- Convention. Convention. Yeah. Um, in what capacity? Uh, well, I'm a retired bishop, so I'm still a member. I am canonically resident still mm-hmm. in the Diocese of New York, even though I live here in California which means that I am under the authority of the Bishop of New York mm-hmm. and um, and I can uh, I can still be involved in uh, everything that happens there and I, I don't do that so much I don't I haven't I don't think I, I don't, I'm not sure that since I've retired I have been to a convention there but um, I was very glad that I had the ability to mm-hmm. do it I want to get into like a little bit of your history, yeah. if that's all okay. right. You've mentioned some things about your your history, and, yeah. and I I would love to hear a little bit about that. And you were a retired bishop, yes, but you weren't a bishop for your entire adult life. No, I had two lives, <laughs> and that's what I, I would love to hear about that a little bit. Yeah, my first life was in theater. Yeah, and uh, I was an actress. Uh-huh. I know we are called actors today, but darling, I was an actress. That's what we called ourselves then, and I love that term. Um, so, uh, and um, it's interesting because actually when I was about 14, my brother, I had two brothers, one of them asked me what I want to be when I grew mm-hmm. up, and I said, what I really want to be is a priest. And uh, we were Roman Catholic at the time, but it wouldn't have mattered. There weren't women in Episcopal priests either. And, and, it, and he uh, he said, well, you know you can't be a priest. And I said, yeah, I know, but you asked me what I wanted to be. That's what I want to be. <laughs> and uh, he said, well, why don't you be a nun? I said, no, no, I don't want to be a nun. You can't, well, in those days, I would have said, say mass. Mm-hmm. So it was interesting that that came back to me later. But there are so many similarities between theater and and religion. And in fact, they were one at one time in history but uh, so anyway it doesn't surprise me that I went into theater but uh, because you it is a spiritual enterprise and you lead often I think there's a lot of sacrifice mm-hmm. um, you know <laughs> poverty chastity and obedience um, maybe <laughs> not chastity but <laughs> <laughs> but but certainly poverty uh-huh. and obedience in the sense that you know you're at the whim of especially as an actor. I mean, if you're a writer, you can always write on your own. You mm-hmm. still have to sell it. But your art, you can do alone. And as an actor, you really can't. You need you need other people. You need an agent. You need a director. You need somebody, a producer. You need all those things. So um, so it was, uh, it was uh, frustrating to me. But uh, I did an 
I uh, I was in New York. I was a and I was a stage actress. Mm-hmm. Um, I have two films in which I had very small parts, uh, but uh, one of them always gave me a lot of street cred with uh, youth groups, and that is that I'm in The Godfather. Um, I am the screaming teenager when the when the singer comes on, and you know that's my not even 15 minutes of fame. And I'm also, uh, oddly, in an Andy Warhol film. Really? Yeah, and I have lines in that. I'm under the credits. The thing is, I, I don't think I... I've never seen it. Really? Yeah, I, there's something that happens in the movie that I, I just didn't want to see. But, you know, when you're you know when you, you're in a bit part, you don't get the script. Right. You get your sides, and it was perfectly fine. My scene was perfectly mm-hmm. fine. So I have to ask, what those experiences were like? Did you meet Coppola? Was he directing you? And did you meet Andy Warhol, or was it just kind of like? Because I, I, I'm just curious about that. Sure, sure. Well, it's very surprising, actually. I can talk about this because finally uh, somebody talked about it on TV. It was just. The Godfather, Coppola was directing, but not directly. He was there, and Lou DiGiamo was there, who was who cast the movie. Mm-hmm. And evidently, the day before, one of the actors had thrown a chair. There was a big argument. And so Coppola was not dealing directly with the actors anymore. There was... The, uh, the feelings. Now I don't know the exact details, but mm-hmm. there's there's more to it than that. But anyway, so um, so it was actually kind of funny. Coppola would be there, and he'd look, and he and then he'd lean over, and he'd go, whisper, 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 and then Lou Dijama would go and talk to people, right? You know, so um, you know, and uh, one day. Um, uh, the of the four days that I was there, one day, and there I, you know, the wedding scene. There were so many extras, mm-hmm. and there was there was so much, and all the main cast was there as well. Right. And one of the four days, and this is what was finally I heard somebody who was there spoke about it on mm-hmm. TV, um, as a joke quote, <laughs> uh-huh. unquote, um, Marlon Brando dropped his trousers. Ha, ha, ha. Everything stopped. 400 people on the set. You know, everything stopped. Well, you know, it was just... Actually, I thought it was going to be a grade B, you know, gangster flick. Uh Uh-huh. So my husband and I go, right? Right. And we get to the theater. There's a big, long line to get in. Right. And we go to see it, and we're blown away. I mean, it was just, we could not believe how good a movie that was, uh-huh. you know. But After being know, so on set where... After being on set where it was like, it was like, yeah. you know, it was just like amateur hour, really, on <laughs> the set. And then, you know, I made more in, in uh, penalties uh-huh. on, on that than I did on the salary mm-hmm. because... Uh, <laughs> we had all of this food in front of us, right? right? But they didn't give us breaks. They didn't give us enough breaks. They didn't, you know, provide for us. And of course, we couldn't eat the food because it was rotting in the sun. It was very right. hot and all of that. But anyway, so it was an experience. But 
You know, I really love Coppola's work. I really loved all three of The Godfathers, including number three, uh -huh. because my background is Italian. People criticize putting Sophia in to that role uh, instead of the other actress that they were putting But she was just right. She was just right. And, you know, those were much... That, that was a trilogy that was much deeper because it, 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 it looks at the... It, in each of them, there's a different area in which the evil of the mafia is infiltrated. Mm -hmm. You know, the church, politics, entertainment. Mm -hmm. And the last one was like an opera. I mean, it was. It was very operatic, the last movie. Anyway, all right, now, Andy Warhol. Yeah, Andy Warhol. What a gentleman he was. And what a lovely experience I had in auditioning for this movie. Mm -hmm. It was, it felt kind of British, you know. It was all very proper. So, and I think he was like that. And I think he had, he was attracted to people who were not like that. Mm -hmm. You know, very flamboyant in all of these characters and whatever. But... I was, we were all treated very well on the set. I wasn't, that was only one day shoot, even though I had lines on that. Might have been two days. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I, I thought, I've always thought of the contrast of my experience behind the scenes on those two. So, but anyway, I, I can't recommend that you see that movie. It's a cult favorite. I can't even say what happens in the movie. Well, I, I should say it because if it doesn't happen in mm -hmm. the movie, then I'll go see it. <laughs> right, right. What, what, what is the movie? It's called Bad. Bad. I'm, I, I'm not familiar with it, obviously. Um, yeah. But that, that is a fascinating thing that, that will happen to actors where you just get, you know, you just get your pages. Yeah. And you, you don't know, you know, what's in the rest, what else is happening around you. Yeah. Like I've, I've had other friends, I've had friends who've done like, you know, bit work like that. And then the thing comes out, and they're like, oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, I, I can't do that kind of thing anymore as a right. bishop. I mean, right. I, you know. <laughs> because most people don't know that you don't know as an actor. Right. You, you don't right. know the, ahead of time what the whole thing is. Yeah. The, the amount of you know, all the films that I've worked in and, and been involved with, the amount of waiting around. Oh, that yeah. happened. You know, everybody thinks making movies is really exciting. It's like, no, it's, it's very It's boring. sort of like being at the DMV. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh. And uh, after a while, it became very frustrating. There was so much time in which I wasn't working, and um, I um, started my own theater company. Mm -hmm. And I started it in an Episcopal church. I started it in the little church around the corner which was considered the actor's church, still is, because in the 19th century it buried an actor who was... Um, Joseph Jefferson was a very famous actor in the 19th century, and he had a friend, a close friend, who died, and he went to this church on 28th Street uh, uh, with the man's son, it was George Holland, who was basically a, com a comic actor, mm -hmm. and um, they were making arrangements for his funeral. They got to the end, 
and the minister said, well, what did he, what was his occupation? And he said, well, he was an actor. And the man said, oh, I'm sorry, we don't, we don't bury actors from this church. But there's a little church around the corner that does that sort of thing. <laughs> and Joseph Jefferson was widely quoted in the uh, 20 newspapers that New York had in the time right. as saying, well, then God bless the little church around the corner. And he went there, and they did, um, uh, they indeed, um, bury actors and marry them and baptize them and right. everything. And that became the tradition there. So I went there, and, and I didn't know this at the time because a lot of other people had wanted to start theaters there. Mm -hmm. But I happened to come there the, the month after the new priest came, and he loved theater. So it was a yes, and I was there from... 72 to 80, We called it the Joseph Jefferson Theater Company, of course. Mm -hmm. And um, we did uh, we did uh, revivals mostly. After a while, we developed some new work, but I developed it out of my own frustration in a way because it was an actors' theater. There were so many things happening off off Broadway that were uh, writers or directors or, you know, but but I felt there was there was not much that really put the actor at the center. So this was an actor's theater. We did revivals. It was a chance to play the meaty part that you uh, you wish you had been around to audition for, and the, you know, and uh, you could be seen in a very nice place by agents instead of crawling up these staircases in the back rooms of, you know. So, um, and uh, there were a lot of people who are famous now who weren't famous then, you know, like um, Rhea Perlman, uh, uh, Armand Asante, uh, um, Tom Hulse, mm -hmm. and quite a number of people that went on to become more famous, mm -hmm. you know. But the thing is, it was for, really, a, it was for equity actors. It was for professional actors. We had non-union people, too, but um, because we weren't paying anything at the time. Right. So. Um, and uh, I did a few parts, but I found that I was really producing. And I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed producing. I did some directing. Um, but making it happen, you know, creating that world. And that, I think, is like, you know, that's like what you do, uh, what a priest does in a parish. You build a community, mm -hmm. you know, and that serves a higher purpose. And so uh, it was great training in its own way, you know. And um, anyway, you know, for a small theater, the, the buck really stops at the producer just the way in church it stops, stops with the priest, you know, uh -huh, and, uh -huh. you know, uh, and so you're, you're, <laughs> if there's nobody else to do it, you got to do it, and things like that, but, um, but anyway, so we, uh, after, uh, I guess it was, uh, 74, I think, I, I can't remember exactly the date, but I decided also to do all American plays, because there was a lot of, uh, Anglophilia at the time <laughs> in theater. There still is. And there still is, um, and uh, and that's all very well and good. But there's so much in the and so our one year we had 
uh, when, I think when we kicked this off, we had four productions, and we had members of the original cast, wherever possible, to come and um, and be in conversations that were uh, moderated by Brendan Gill. And there were people like Harold Corman for Awake and Sing, and uh, I'm going to blank on her name. Oh, her first name was Peggy. We did I Remember Mama. We did I Remember Mama. Mm -hmm. So anyway, that was a that was a great season, and we had we, it was just uh, it was it was interesting because our community, I mean the 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 steady community were actually the production staff, and we had uh, uh, and some of our directors returned uh, to work with us. Anyway, so that's that for that part and then I left in uh, 19 I closed the theater actually I tried to pass it on but you know when I started my company there were 24 off of Broadway theaters mm -hmm. and there were 10 times as many when I left right um, and we had things go to other productions we did you know Joseph Jefferson did Rip Van Winkle for 40 years mm -hmm. and so we were invited to perform it on the grounds of uh, of, uh, of the grounds of in Tarrytown. Um, it's very embarrassing. It's all right. Like, a, who wrote, you know, The Headless Horseman and oh, all that uh, stuff? Oh, um, oh man, I'm blanking <laughs> on it now. I want to say Nathaniel Rip Van Winkle. Yeah. I want to say Nathaniel Hawthorne, but that's no, not, no, 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 that's no, not right. No, very much a New Yorker. Anyway, yeah. we we did this for three years on the grounds in a tent on the grounds of uh -huh. his home. Um, I had a show go to Broadway, but it was a great flop. Um, I I don't know, but but it was a great experience. I really it was it was a good time. Uh -huh. you know, it was a good time in my life. But towards the end, I felt a pull to something else and by this time I had become an Episcopalian I wasn't really anything for about 10 years and um, it wasn't that I had lost faith in God I, it's just I had sort of lost faith in church which I think a lot of people do and I think for very good reasons you know? and I found in the Episcopal Church um, that kind of um, liturgical worship that I loved um, the Eucharist, which was always the center of my life when I was practicing Christianity, and this broad-mindedness that I thought I would never find in a religious environment. So it was sort of like, sign me up, I'm coming here, <laughs> you know. Yeah, um, I mean, that is one of uh, the, the really attractive things about the Episcoposy. Yeah. As a clown friend of mine refers to her, <laughs> her church uh, up in uh, Portland, Oregon. Yeah. Uh, she, she uh, the, the, the Episcopacy, uh, it just seems like the, the vibe is like, we're all figuring it out together. Yeah. And as long as you're trying to figure it out, you're like, come figure it out with us. Which is definitely in a lot of the churches that I was familiar with growing up. Oh my goodness, just a hummingbird. Just yes, coming to right visit. Yeah. A lot of the, a lot of the churches I experienced growing up, you know, there was sort of this like it was the opposite. It was like we have it more figured out 
than anyone else. Yeah. You know, our denomination is a split off from a splinter group of a sect of a, <laughs> you know, of a diaspora yeah. of a of of a feud of a you know, you know, all the way back. You know, it's like this giant tree of of separations and and then they always have a a name like United Reformed Church. Yes, right. <laughs> But it's, it's sort of like we have it the most figured out, and either you're gonna you're gonna buy into this exact thing, or you, you know you're not really welcome here. Whereas it, I, the sense I've got whenever I attend an Episcopal service is it's this kind of thing where it's like we don't have anything figured out, but we're we all kind of have found a direction, like we found a um, I guess to use a a sort of a poetic term. We've all found it the same guiding star. There's sort of the same focal point that yeah. we're all trusting to. That, that seems to be kind of the Episcopal thing where it's like, none of us have the answers, but we know who does. It's exactly that. And, and uh, we owe our ethos to Queen Elizabeth with the Elizabethan settlement because she was tired of all these people dying over religion mm -hmm. and did not want to follow her sister Bloody Mary. Um, and basically, uh, we already had this wonderful prayer book, and she said, you are required to go to church on Sunday and to use the prayer book. And beyond that, I do not need to have a window into men's souls. And that really created um, an identity which I think is unique in Christianity that what keeps us together is common prayer and that keeps us humble I want to tell you um, but, or at least it should mm -hmm. because we are drawn from a whole variety of viewpoints and you're absolutely right that we follow the star which is Jesus and in terms of worship you can find high church you can find low church you can find whatever flavor you like, but the prayer book, words are always the same. There's more innovation and whatever, but you know, priests who come from other tra traditions will often change the words in the service. People who really understand our tradition never change it, except if we do it communally. There are revisions, of course, and there should be, but we agree on that together. We do not go off on our own because if we tamper with that we will lose our identity among all the all the other denominations and it is when you think about it a more love love focused identity because it gathers us it draws us together in the mutual love of God and Christ and 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 that's what's primary we have plenty of arguments about a lot of things, you know, and it's, it's, but it's, somebody what wants, and we belong to the Anglican Communion, mm -hmm. but that is not a unified church. There is not a an Anglican church. There is the Anglican church, which is composed of different churches in that tradition. Um, and... It's something that actually the struggle about, in the struggle with African bishops uh, over homosexuality, 
it was not a concept that they really they really felt they belonged to an Anglican church. Um, and I think that was made it harder. Um, but uh, uh, also, I, years ago, I don't know who it was, somebody questioned some previous Archbishop of Canterbury that said, what holds the Anglican Communion together? Mm -hmm. And he said, affection. And that's it. And if we don't have that love for one another, we do, we do fall apart. And I think it's what's, despite all the arguments, I think essentially it's kept us together despite that, even though there are people who don't come to meetings and blah, blah, blah. But that's not, I think that time has really kind of passed. Mm -hmm. The worst of that is over, I think. Um, but, you know, part of Africa was evangelized by a very evangelical form of evangelical and conservative mm -hmm. form of Anglicanism. And one of the things that happened with early missionary work is that English culture was was promulgated along with the gospel. And there was no such thing, except with with missionaries here and there who were really sensitive, culturally sensitive, uh, to, uh, to really take cultural context. I mean, why else would you wear woolen suits and vestments in India right. and Africa? I mean, you know, come on. Jesus didn't wear a wool suit. <laughs> but anyway, that we, I have a, a you know, yeah. more contemporary consciousness of all that. But but anyway, so one of the things we talked about in terms of homosexuality was cultural context. Mm -hmm. And it and it came back at us. Uh, you know, that you you didn't let us have our cultural context in that area. What and now we're supposed to do it for you. But, you know, I think there were a lot of things worked out in being worked out in that whole argument too because you know on the other side of it over here we have to really see our racism in dealing with Africa mm -hmm. and that's a whole other story our American crucifixion of Jesus was slavery it was other things too but it was the most egregious example of of just the atrocities, the owning, the, 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 you know, there was no, it was nothing, it was no evil done in secret, which there always is. Right. It was something that was accepted mm -hmm. by society. And, um, and Northerners had their hand in it too, because they made a lot of money yeah. off of it. Yep. Uh, even though they were quick to give up the actual slavery, the business would not so much. Yeah. You know, I went back to New York for the diocesan convention last year, mm -hmm. and we passed a resolution that had been tabled 150 years ago. No, more. maybe more. 
I'm, I'm sorry, maybe it's 170 something, I don't remember, mm -hmm. but it was tabled uh, and it was put forth by uh, John Jay. Mm -hmm. And it was, it, I don't remember the text of it now, but it would essentially end this, any participation in the slave trade. And of course, bishops being how they are, can be um, very polite, did not really want to oppose it and nobody wanted to go on record as opposing something that had to do with uh, slavery. So they left the room. They quietly left the room one by one and then there was no longer a quorum so it had to be tabled. And I cannot tell you how satisfying it was to pass that resolution. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry, I should have done the math. I didn't know I was going to talk about it, but, you know, whatever no, no, it was. No, it's, it's because right. it was before abolition. Yeah. Uh, because New York had given up, uh, had uh, voted to end slavery mm -hmm. um, earlier than that. So. Uh, but they didn't vote to not make money off slavery. So uh, it was it was very interesting to me. But anyway, because we're always ready to point the figure finger at someone else, mm -hmm. and you know what our churches are doing are they are investigating their own history, yeah, and repenting and being public about how slavery supported their parish in some kind of way. And I, I don't know that, you know, I, I don't know that it's going to turn out to be everyone, but the bigger ones certainly, as they look back, were part of that economic circle. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I, I think that it continues, slavery continues to harm us because we've never repented and we've never apologized, and we've never made amends. And, you know, to hear people say, oh, well, it was over 150 years ago, and, you know, they should get over it by now. Oh, right, oh, is that right? Is that the way we get over history? It isn't. You know, when I traveled in, in, uh, in Mexico, mm -hmm. um, and we were in Mexico City and in the environs of Mexico City for um, a retreat with scholars. And you would think that the conquest was yesterday. Mm -hmm. It was 300 years ago, and it is so vivid within that people still. Yeah. Because that's never been, that's never been admitted, repented, amendment, amending, you know, amendments, not amendments. But uh, amends yeah. made, uh, and um, I traveled in in Korea, and it was like the Japanese occupation was yesterday, and the evidence of it, the the conversations, the the whole culture is affected by that. We don't get over our history. We don't. We unless we begin to deal with those things, we they can't heal. And, um, and George Floyd, I think, God bless him, uh, is 
the tipping point, I think, on that for us. And I hope so. Uh, even though more deaths have happened after his death. But there is a resistance now. There is an understanding now. And I think there is a repentance now that can save this country. Because if we continue to deny our past and deny our responsibility, uh, I, I think I don't see how we can move forward and unite as a country. Yeah, it's, that, that, that acknowledgement of what you are working to get past, of what you are working to, to you know, the, the ashes that you're trying to build on, you know, dealing with it. Um, because trauma is a, is a generational thing. You know, there's something that I, there's a Center for Holocaust Studies at my university, and I'm not involved with it, but one of the things that they've been doing research into is, like, the fact that grandchildren and great-grandchildren of Holocaust survivors, like, are affected. Like, there's a higher than average, um, instances of depression and certain other mental illnesses, and undoubtedly that's also a factor in long-term traumas with any group of people. It's this, this thing that, that you have to acknowledge and you have to, you have to, to deal with it and not just be like, well, it was a long time ago. I mean, there's a lot of things that were yeah. a long time ago that we're still dealing with, you know? I mean, it's and it's exacerbated by the fact that that oppression is not simply in history, it's present now. Exactly. There's also a really excellent series that we're doing now called Knee on My Neck, Slavery's Ghost. Uh, we just had the first session, and it was phenomenal. It's very profound. I've been involved in a lot of things mm -hmm. having to do with anti-racism and all of that over the years, and this, this is something really quite extraordinary, and it includes people talking, it includes videos, and, um, and then we meet via Zoom in small groups. Mm -hmm to talk about things and it's it's it was remarkably affecting and it's so much so that I am going to go back and review that before we have our next session on next Wednesday and I had an aha moment uh, from this video that showed the direct connection to the policing of runaway slaves down through the years to that still affects our own policing. That man who was drunk in the Wendy's parking lot and he said he wasn't armed and he said uh, I could just walk home from here. And they said no, 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 we're going to take you in. Do you think they would have done that to a white man? No. They would have said sure buddy. Can you walk okay? Mm -hmm. Should we drop you off? I mean, uh, I have an instance of of that right here, in uh, you know where I, uh, years ago I had here uh, a couple of boys who were into drugs and into dealing mm -hmm. in the neighborhood. They they had grown up in the neighborhood. And they were just fine. Every the other kids played with them until they got to their teen years and all this happened. 
One of them was stoned out of his mind and drunk, parked his car up against another car and in front of my another neighbor's driveway and passed out totally. And the police came and uh, I, we kind of thought, oh, well, maybe this will get dealt with. Well, they put him in handcuffs and one cop took him aside and talked to him for an hour and then unlocked the handcuffs and shook his hand and he went off. And I thought, what black kid would ever get that? Uh, P.S. I think it was not too long after that that he tried to break into my house so he could, you know, feed his habit. So, you know, I, the discrepancy between the way what, what is it about the discrepancy between the way white men are handled and black men and white women and black women? It's something that is deeply ingrained and unconscious most of the time, I think, and very pernicious. And it, because of it, it allows white supremacists to enter the police force and, and from, because it's it's a haven, actually, really, for that kind of thinking. I personally believe that you, you don't really change a system by simply going after the extremists on the other side. Although, I think that should be done. I think there should be absolutely, really deep uh, background checks for people who want to be police. And people who have been engaged in any White supremacist communities should absolutely be weeded out. That's absolutely true. I think one of the things is that these are these are you know police forces and law enforcement. It's gener they're generational things. So it's it's not that the turnover happens, you know, like with a new generation. It's like there are older people who influence it down. There there's entrenchment. There's you know there's um, there's nepotism. Like there are in a lot of industries and and professions. Right. But most industries and professions don't carry guns, and right. you know, and have that power over other people. Yeah, and and the um, you know, what I, I I really liked what you just said though about you don't change things by going after the most extreme, the most extreme opposition. Yeah, because it's the it's the it's the people in the middle. It's the ninety five percent or the ninety percent or whatever of people who are just kind of it, who feel in the middle. You know whether they are left or right or Republican, Democrat, whatever. They're yeah. still the the people in the middle who who tacitly allow things to continue by looking the other way or just kind of perpetuating a system or not understanding it. I mean, because mm -hmm. the thing about about that video was that I I never you know I never knew that I never even thought of that in thinking about police brutality and to what I would also do with that video is make it part of police training. Because I believe, and, and to show to police who are already police, because I think there are a lot of good cops. I've worked with a lot of police um, and over the years, and, and I would like to show that to them. Not, and the wonderful thing about that video is that it's not um, pejorative. It just lays it out. And I think, I know that the police that I worked with in my last job, it would have been an aha moment for them mm -hmm. in a way that it was for me. 
um, it's 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 in a way the answer to the puzzle of why where did this all develop and why does it still continue and and of course you know I think that uh, that racism is passed on you know a lot of things but certainly racism. Um, and the other kinds of historical things are passed on in ways that are unconscious. We don't know it, but it's the way we deal with things, the way we deal with people. And, you know, there's, the, there's the stuff that is intentional and really evil. And then there's all this stuff that's simply in the iceberg underneath of our culture that we never look at, we don't see, we don't name it, we don't... It's just there. You know... Uh, years ago, we had a, a, my husband's a first cousin had um, five kids, and they were visiting somebody in the South End, and so this was a while ago. I mean, it must have been in the 60s, I think. Anyway. And they were staying with a family, and the family had a black woman caring for the children, probably doing household things. And um, and my husband's cousin was quite strict, and they were so. Anyway, when when the parents were going out, uh, they said, "Well, you have to do what I don't remember the woman saying. Whatever she says, and you be good." And in an interchange, the my cousin's children. One of them said, yes, ma'am, to her. And this other boy, the southern boy, said, you don't say ma'am to her. And my cousin said, well, why not? And the little boy said, I don't know. You just don't. And that's the thing about it. He didn't know why. Mm -hmm. And a lot of, you know, and that's the way we pass things on in this in this kind of way, in subtle ways, and body language, behaviors, and you know, the kid probably had never been told never say, ma'am. Oh yeah. You know, because he didn't know. He would have said, "Why well, my my mother told me." No, but he just knew. He absorbed that kind of thing, and that's that's the way, you know, that's the way it happens. It's yeah, that unconscious like childhood absorption of but of that's learning. Yeah, but that's where the hope is because that those are the people who, when they realize, think sometimes think, oh well, I'm not going to do that anymore. Mm -hmm. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Mm -hmm. So uh, so I think with the growing consciousness, yeah, that there's more hope now than there has been before. Absolutely agree. One of my favorite things in getting to talk to someone like you is that there are so many things that, as a wider society, we think are antithetical. Like, they can't exist in the same person. You know, deep, passionate Christian faith and being accepting of LGBTQ people and also being, like, aware and passionate and working towards social justice. Like, those are things that often don't... There's a perception that those things don't mix in a person. Yeah. But they do. They do all the time. Any f any mixture of things can coexist in a human being, and that's why I do this podcast. Is I love sharing these. The I love sharing individual people because yeah. I think their individual people are windows into other ways of thinking, and it, you know it builds empathy, and and that's how we all move forward. Yes, I think that's right. 
by telling our stories. Hey, thank you so much for sharing this journey with me. That you've, you've this um, story of your life, where you know you're acting and then you create theater because there's not the place for the thing that you want. Right. And then that sort of leads you into the priesthood, and through that, then to where you are now. Yeah. And you said at the beginning that you've you've lived two lives. Yeah. But I kind of get the sense from talking to you, and we've we've had coffee together before this, that uh, that you're kind of on the cusp of the third a third life. Like there's a, there's something else. Yeah. You sort of you 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 you're you're thinking about returning to New York, and you're yes. sort of like looking at all these things. You you struck a hopeful tone at the end of sort of our talking about social justice issues that like children have this ability to kind of see through the BS mm-hmm. because that they can see. The, and young people can realize that something is just learned and it's not innate. Um, and so, what what is what is your what is your plans for your third life? Like, what's next? What you sort of I know you're retired, but you're so yes. energetic and engaged. Yeah, I feel I I don't know exactly, but I am moving back to New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hope to go into contract on an apartment that I saw there. Yeah, so, um, and I feel called to go back to New York, and I know that I want the work that the diocese is doing in anti-racism now, and this whole thing about slavery and reparations is so profound, and I really want to be a part of that. And what else happens, I don't know. I mean, I don't have any, I don't necessarily want to work, per se. Mm-hmm. But uh, I want to be in the mix there. I really do. So we'll see what happens. Well, I can't wait to to do a follow-up interview with you and find out what happens once you're in the mix. Kathy, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It has been an absolute delight. And uh, come back anytime. Thank you. Thank you so much. Wasn't Kathy just great? Anyway, let's move on to the next segment. Movie Club. I told you folks a couple weeks ago that I was going to be watching Dragon Slayer. I've now watched Dragon Slayer. I have some thoughts about it. And uh, yeah, I hope some of you have watched it at home. Because for the Movie Club uh, pieces, I'm going to expect that that most of you have watched the thing. So, you know, there'll be some spoilers and whatnot. Uh, anyway, here we go. Whoo, boy. This was entirely not what I expected. I mean, on the one hand, yes, this is an 80s fantasy film featuring a dragon attacking a Middle Ages-y kingdom, and there are wizards in it, but I guess I wasn't expecting it to be so... so serious. Before we go any further, let's address the Vermithrax pejorative in the room. I have long known that writers like Guillermo del Toro and George R. War of the Roses fanfic writer Martin consider Vermithrax pejorative to be the pinnacle of cinematic dragons, and it's not really difficult to see why in some respects. This dragon is incredible in terms of the wide range of special effects used to bring her to life, and the nuances of that life once realized. This monster has so much personality. She expresses a whole range of emotions. You even get to see her work through the best ways to attack the wizards that aggravate her. But if the dragon is so great, what about the rest of the film? Honestly, I found much of it deeply underwhelming. I think this is in large part due to the fact that it seems like everyone involved behind the scenes 
was passionately dedicated to making something serious. It sort of puts me in mind of recent cinematic outings with superheroes, films like The Dark Knight Rises or Logan. While both of those films have quality, I, I think they also suffer from the misapprehension that serious dramatic films must eschew levity for drama. As I've argued before on this podcast, levity is the key ingredient needed to bond with the characters in art. Simply showing a character and saying, care about them, and then doing something horrible to them in the hope that it will elicit emotion doesn't really cut it with me. The fact that the dragon is the only character in this film I can name off the top of my head should tell you something about the general feeling this film left me with. For the record, the story concerns a group of peasants traveling to ask a renowned wizard if he will slay the dragon that holds their land captive. The wizard agrees, instructing his young apprentice and ancient doddering steward to pack their bags for an epic journey, and then lets a dude stab him through the heart on the steps of his front door. The apprentice decides to forge on with the quest, joining up with the peasants and following them back to their kingdom. Along the way, we see the only frontal male nudity in a Disney film that I am aware of when the wizard's apprentice goes for a swim. During his frolic, he sees some tantalizing body-double side-boob, which reveals that the brash young man who has been leading the peasants on the wizard enlistment quest is, in fact, a beautiful young girl, which somehow nobody has ever noticed. See, her father disguised her as a boy so that he could keep her out of the young maidens to be sacrificed to the dragon once a year lottery, said dragon being the aforementioned VP. He promises to keep her secret, and in perhaps one of the best subversions of fairy tale expectations, he doesn't immediately fall in love with her, despite the body double seeing his cash and prizes. I'm making a big deal out of the body double thing here because it's so painfully obvious. Like, the actress playing the peasant is a skinny slip of a thing, and it seems like the producers were like, we need to be clear, it's a woman when we see her naked under the water. Get me headshots of seven Jessica Rabbit lookalikes and all the cocaine in Metzinger's office. I'm going to be up all night using Whiteout to remove any sense of levity from this script. Uh, where was I? Ah, okay. So the wizard's apprentice arrives at the dragonized kingdom and drops a mountain on the dragon. Pish posh problem solved. The peasants immediately have a massive party, burning giant effigies of the dragon that they somehow already had made. Look, this movie is basically leaning pretty hard on the understanding that you know how fantasy goes. So there's a massive castle with a fancy king in it, supported by what seems to be about 50 peasants. Whatever. Oh snap! The dragon's still alive! Gotta give it more maidens! Let's have a lottery! Oh wait, the maiden lottery is a sham! The princess has been kept out of it! She turns out to be solid and fills the whole lottery with her own name and sacrifices herself to the dragon. Its babies eat her instead. Shenanigans happen, peasant girl's sneaky boy disguising dad is actually blacksmith Q and has made a magic spear that can cut anvils in half, so it should wreck the dragon for sure. Wizard boy is hot to go after it, and then peasant girl gives him armor she's made him from cast off dragon scales, and somehow he still doesn't see that she's super into him. Uh, wow, I had a typo here. Still doesn't see that he's into him. Like, there, there is a little bit of, like, weird gender, non, like, gender whimsical fuckery happening, and it's, it's pretty great. Anyway, ah, uh, where was I? And you could almost hear her kicking the dust and saying, shucks, he should have noticed. Shouldn't have sent my body double home. I could use her right about now. Wizard boy kills all the dragon's babies, and this is, su and then he's surprised when she gets pissed about it. 
win stupid prizes, I guess. Wizard Boy is screwed, but then he remembers some random nonsense the wizard said about collecting his ashes to throw on the floor in the dragon's cave, and the boy does it, and shazammers! The wizard is alive again. So the wizard goes up to the top of a mountain and has what should be a kick-ass battle with the dragon that is far too short, but also somehow manages to feel way too long. Wizard dies, taking down the dragon, and then the shitty king lottery cheater shows up and sticks a sword he can barely lift into the side of the dragon, claiming he killed it. Wizard boy and peasant girl walk off into the sunset, but then a random white horse appears because Gandalf isn't riding him right now, and then, you know, the end. It's all such a titanic feeling of anti-climax, which... I've just realized it's probably why George R. 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 Are you noticing the desperate Tolkien connection? Martin loves this film so much. I think Yermo just likes anything with side boob and dragons, which, considering the HBO show of Game of Thrones, is probably George's thing too. Huh. You know, the fact that so many fantasy writers love Dragon Slayer and like remember it from their youth, it just makes a lot of sense. It's side boob and dragons. Wow, this movie had the HBO theme. I'm just, this isn't in my script. I'm just like remembering, I'm just thinking of this now. Man, this, this, this movie cracked the HBO like nut like forever ago. <laughs> nut. Ugh, I'm, you know, I'm exhausted thinking of this movie. If you liked it, I'm glad you had fun. But honestly, the whole thing feels like many modern films do, where it was a two and a half hour epic that got sliced down to under two hours to try to make it in cinemas or something. Hashtag release the Robin's cut. Anyway, that's it for Dragon Slayer. I don't know what I was thinking when I picked that one. I decided to go back a lot earlier with the next one. Uh, so the next film is the horror classic The Blob, starring Steve McQueen. Because even if the film is lame, I can stare at his eyes the whole time. If you've got a film that you want to hear me talk about on Movie Club and that we can all watch together, let me know shoot me a message or send me a postcard. I would love ridiculous film recommendations to check out. That's it for this installment of the Movie Club segment. Here's a tale. Last fall, I finally returned to university after nearly a decade spent pursuing what I deemed worthier pursuits. While I still maintain that my peregrinations in pursuit of performative practices were a pleasing pastime, their pecuniary proceeds were less than perfect. To wit, I wanted a break. I fully intend to continue to pursue artistic endeavors full-time upon matriculation, but am nevertheless dedicated to my scholarly pursuits. Which is how I found myself sitting in my first class on a Tuesday morning in late September, wondering why my professor kept giving me such odd looks. To her credit, she kept things professional and took us through the relevant course material, telling us what we were going to be studying in, in what order, showing us the syllabus, talking about academic honesty, etc., 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 but the situation was an increasingly tense one for me. Because I am not one for half measures, I chose to sign up for the hardest history class available for my first quarter. This is more difficult than it sounds, as Western, like many other universities, employs a Byzantine system that seems intelligently designed to trick you into registering for things which provide no graduation benefits whatsoever in order to keep you paying tuition for longer than necessary. Don't even get me started on the fact that a class called Psychology of Gender counts neither for psychology nor gender studies according to their rules. Hence my assertion that it only seems intelligently designed. 
Nothing this stupid could have been constructed on purpose. Where was I? Hardest class. Yes, in order to take upper division courses, you have to take certain lower division courses, sometimes ones that no longer exist. At other times, there are requirements that you have to be registered in a given major to take classes in that department, a registration necessitating having already taken classes in that department. Long story short, you just have to throw yourself at the wall and hope something sticks before the debt becomes too crippling, or you end up taking one too many courses with no graduation benefits, such as Intro to Psychology, which does count as multicultural studies, but not psychology. Through some glitch in the registration system, I managed to find a single 400-level history course that I could register for. So that was how I made it into Methods of Historical Analysis. The whole thing sounded increasingly awesome as the teacher took us through the syllabus. We were going to learn to read original sources and evaluate their utility as historical evidence. We were going to visit the Washington State Archives. We were going to write a detailed proposal for our 499 paper. This last thing is kind of a small undergraduate thesis that every history major at Western has to write to graduate. I was really excited. As everyone was leaving, the professor asked me to wait a moment. I found myself desperately going through a mental checklist, wondering if my suit smelled funny or if I had accidentally written anarchist for Satan on my forehead. No, and no. Hmm. With what I would eventually come to adore as her customary directness, she looked me dead in the eyes and bluntly asked, What are you doing in this class? To recap, I was just back in school, I had not taken any classes for over a decade, and I was not a registered history major. To top it all off, back when I was in school, my grades were not great. The fact that I wasn't a registered history major would be resolved after a meeting with the department head the following day. He was all too happy to let me be a history major after a short meeting, especially in light of the fact that I had chosen to cast myself toward the nigh-unscalable wall of methods of research analysis. But my deficiencies as a potential student were not even the central reason she was asking the question, what are you doing in my class? This professor recognized me. I hope you'll forgive me if what I'm about to talk about is not the least bit relatable, but I think it's highly relevant here. For those of you who only know me through this podcast, or perhaps have seen me perform a time or two with my solo accordion cabaret show somewhere out there in the big world, I am, uh, well, the term in my hometown of Bellingham, Washington is Bellebrity. During the first five or six years of my life as a full-time performing artist, there wasn't a possibility to perform I wasn't pursuing. If I wasn't in a show, I was trying to figure out how to get myself on a bill. Open mics, folk jams, Kaylee's, St. Patty's Day, whatever it was, if you could play music at it, I was there, I was a fixture, and I was part of it. Everyone saw me constantly at the local farmer's market, and I was a common sight on weekend nights downtown. I would play accordion, juggle fire, breathe fire, play accordion on fire, lots of fire. When you're still getting started, you figure you can just light shit on fire to get attention while you play a song. It's, I mean, it's pretty hard to turn that down. To top it all off, I was loud! I could gather a crowd on a rainy Monday night in late November if I had to, which I occasionally did have to, as one time I was trying to save up enough money for a visit to see my girlfriend in New York City for my birthday. And, you know, I was busking on Monday nights in late November. Anyway, all of this has contributed to a situation in which I find myself to this very day. 
In my hometown, I am a well-known quantity of chaos. People recognize me when they see me. They come up and say hello when I'm at a cafe. They come over to chat while I'm at the cinema with my parents. They point me out to their children while I'm buying groceries in my pajamas because I'm just done with everything. No, really, that last one has happened multiple times. Like, this one time, I was having the worst day, and all I wanted was a frozen pizza and a six-pack of beer, and I only had enough cash to buy one of those things. This was on a Thursday evening, before the weekend, when I could be busking again and make more money to feed myself. Because back in those early performing days, every Friday was Black Friday. I just realized I could buy a small frozen pizza and a single tall boy can of beer, and, you know, that would sort it out. And So things were sort of looking up for me when I became aware of a small child nearby tugging on their mom's pant leg. Mom! said the wee one in a stage whisper. Mom! Mom! What? said the parent with the infinite patience that only seems present in the kind of yoga-practicing, fashion-conscious, hipster, hippie parents one encounters in the Bellingham Food Co-op. You know what kind of parent I'm talking about, right? Like, the kind that loves to frequent one of those businesses that has a name like Sip and Slide, or Suds and Buds, or maybe Perch and Play? which is a kind of indoor playground slash tap room combination where people my age who inexplicably have three kids, a 401k and perfect abs, take their children to romp while they get their buzz on with Jeff from IT. One of those parents. Don't get me wrong, I love those parents. Some of them are my close friends and some of them are fans who buy all my CDs. I love those parents. But now that I've painted a picture, let's return to this little tableau of hungover, hungry, depression-addled strangely at the grocery store. What is it, Maxie? said the parent. Mom, look, it's strangely. I froze, hand halfway into the freezer already grabbing a frozen pizza. What to do? If I just buy the two things I was about to buy, I don't look whimsical. But if I don't buy anything, then I'm hungry when I leave. I let go of the pizza, close the freezer. I would buy a potato, an onion, a six pack of beer, a jar of peanut butter, and one tiny piece of chocolate. That would be more whimsical. I grabbed a six-pack and started heading for the peanut butter. Oh, it is, whispered the mom, not much quieter than the child. I could still hear them on, from the next aisle over. Why is strangely here? The child was incensed, as though I'd appeared in tucks and tails dancing on their dinner table during a meal. He's probably buying food like we are responded the mom, eliciting a peal of derisive, snorting laughter from the precocious progeny. <laughs> what? Strangely doesn't eat food? That's silly. If anything more was said about me, I didn't hear it, as I beat a hasty retreat out of the store and cycled away with the food. Look, I don't mind being recognized, and honestly, I find the whole incident cute in retrospect, but please understand, I, I, I don't want to sound like some whingy, world-weary, low-tier celebrity complaining about being recognized. I'm just trying to explain that this happens from time to time, and it can have an occasional odd effect on me as I go about my business. Not all the time, not every day, not even every week, but just enough to really underscore to me the fact that over the last decade and change, I have made quite the impression. I do not have an overinflated sense of my own importance or popularity. It's not like I'm a household name. It's just that a significantly larger amount of people know my name and preposterous performative personality than the average person. 
I cannot speak to the particular feelings anyone out there has toward me, except that I feel reasonably certain that many people think I am some flavor, harmless or otherwise, of crazy person. Which brings me back to my new professor asking me, what are you doing in this class? I responded that I had signed up for her course because of those upper division courses available to me in the history department. Hers was the most interesting. I'd always wanted to learn how to do archival research, and this seemed like a dream class come true. She nodded, taking that in, and then asked a few follow-up questions, as well as making some suggestions of other classes I might find more suitable. I was firm, however. I wanted to take this class. I was here on purpose. Toward the end of our conversation, she finally admitted that she knew I was a performance artist. She'd seen me perform several times. Suddenly, everything fell into place. I tried to put myself in her shoes. This woman had showed up for, for work, expecting to teach some history. Her students had come in, and among them was the fire-breathing, knife-juggling, accordion-playing, noise-complaint-generating maniac who had been disturbing the local peace for the better part of the preceding decade. She must have been wondering where the hidden cameras were and when I was going to leap up and begin a musical number for my shitty web series or whatever. I ended up having an amazing quarter with her. She taught me to mistrust pretty much every historical source for a variety of reasons, some of which you wouldn't believe if I told you. I don't really know if there's a moral to this story, but if I had to make one up, it would be this. If you're about to teach a high-level history course and you arrive in your classroom to find a known lunatic sitting there eagerly waiting to learn, give the lunatic the benefit of the doubt. Even lunatics need to properly evaluate the veracity of historical sources. Hokey fright. Are you familiar with Wikipedia's dubious selection of celebrity photographs? Next time you have a free moment, fire up your internet access portal of choice and maneuver your eyeballs over to Wikipedia. Wow. We really do live in a cyberpunk future, don't we? I remember being in high school and reading books like Neuromancer and dreaming of riding the net through my VR goggles and having an avatar that was a nine-foot-tall green alien woman. Just me? So, once you've pulled up Wikipedia, just type in any celebrity. Any celebrity you can bring to mind. Actors, musicians, authors, influencers. Do this for a few notable individuals and you begin to notice a pattern. The photos are awful. Like, really, really, really awful. I'm sure this has something to do with the fact that Wikipedia operates on a Creative Commons license or something, but seriously... These are some of the best-looking people in the world, and they all look incredibly... bad. It's almost like Wikipedia's style book for choosing which Creative Commons photo to use says something along the lines of, Use the most awkward photo possible. Bonus points if it takes at least 20 seconds of looking at the photo to determine if it is indeed the individual in question. Trust me, go, just go look at Timothy Dalton's page if you want to see him with the most awkward smile imaginable. Or if you've ever wondered what Guy Pierce looks like in an alternative universe where he's an annoying wannabe hip professor who teaches Econ 101, now you know where to find that photo. Oh, here's a personal favorite. Eminem's Wikipedia photo is supposedly one of him performing in 2018, but it looks like it was taken with a 2006 flip phone. If you need to kill a few minutes and you're looking for a way to do it, I highly recommend checking out Wikipedia's photo selection. It's incredible. They can get a beautiful high-res shot of an 18th century biologist's rendering of a dissected kangaroo's genitals, but then 
their photo of Selena Gomez looks like someone left a Selena Gomez action figure on the dashboard of a car in an abandoned Toys R Us parking lot in Tucson, Arizona. <laughs> I'm not saying any of this is good, but at least now you've heard about it. Resolution update. Date, date, date. Number one, read Moby Dick. Did you know that there's a small comedic play in the middle of this novel? Because I sure did not. The whole thing is a dialogue-heavy portrayal of the rambunctious crew after an extra-large ration of grog, and it is delightful. Number two, learn to understand my carbon footprint. I'm going to be home in Bellingham very soon, and I'm actually going to turn this particular resolution into probably a regular segment. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to do all kinds of things like canning my own food and sort of researching uh, how that all works. So stay tuned. Number three, finish lessons. Every day I do a little uh, little thing on the app. Uh, here's your finished vocab word for today. Bus. Bussy. There you go. There, you, you practically speak Finnish already. Like, you just make everything cute. Bussy. Buses. Bussy. You know, my, my other favorite uh, Finnish word right now. And this is where this is where you know that the Finns are maybe, like, Finland, the entirety of Finland may be a practical joke of some kind. Um, because... Uh, the word for orange uh, in Finnish is appelsini. I'm sorry, what? Like, appelsini, appelsini. I, I just can't. Number four, quit streaming stuff. I, uh, I'm working on a longer piece about this, but it's not ready yet. Uh, but I'm, I'm going to turn off all of my streaming subscriptions uh, once I get back to Bellingham. I think that is the plan. So uh, it's, it's been an interesting couple of months, and I can't wait to tell you about it. Number five, make at least 36 episodes of this podcast. Well, this is number 10 this year, so that's um, good. Uh, I may need to readjust this resolution to include making a few episodes to get ahead of myself for next year, but... I'll have to think about it. I am going to, by the time you're listening to this, I will be home in Bellingham uh, and I won't have to record in an incredibly hot closet in Fresno, California, where it is 105 degrees outside. I thought the last closet was a hot closet. This is a hot closet. Um, anyway, uh, moving on. Number six. As of this writing, I have read 52 books in the calendar year 2020. I'm so excited and proud. I'm sorry that my uh, my vocal air horn wasn't as good as Aaron J. Shea's. But uh, yeah, I could cross that off the list. I don't have to read another book all year. <laughs> Who am I kidding? Uh, I'm already uh, starting another one. Uh, so we can cross that off the list, but, uh, I, I'm kind of thinking I want to try to make it to 104 cause it, cause it's exactly halfway through the year. So uh, I'll keep you folks posted. 50 word movie reviews. The score. This 2001 heist film from director Frank Oz is an odd duck. Equal parts ticking time bomb and I'm too old for this shit meditation. Everyone involved is doing fantastic work, even if Brando was a shithead behind the scenes, which I can now confirm having talked to Kathy. Recommended for fans of heists or crime dramas and janitors. A Fish Called Wanda. 
I've rarely seen physical performances as committed as Kevin Klein delivers in this caper. The other leads, Cleese, Curtis, and Palin, are equally delightful, but it's not hard to see why Klein got the wee golden man. Bits of this haven't aged well, but darn it, I laughed a lot. Mailbag. I'm going to be checking all my mail tomorrow up in Bellingham. You can send paper mail to Strangely, 1000 Harris Avenue, Bellingham, Washington, 98225. Send me something weird. Like, I'll open it while I'm recording and you can hear my reactions. So, you know, if you've got a pile of old taxidermy or, like, somebody's skull or, like, a tooth... I don't know, I, I'm sorry, this all sounds really macabre. Like, it doesn't have to be macabre. You could be like, this is a fork. Just whatever it is, mail it to me. Well, that about does it for this week's episode of Strangely and Friends, the podcast. Strangely and Friends, the podcast is produced in a secret, undisclosed location by me, Strangely Duesberg. The podcast is made possible by my incredible supporters on Patreon, a uh, special shout out to my executive producer patrons, Kim Truitt and Tina Jones. Check out patreon.com strangely to find out how you can help me make more of whatever this is. Strangely and Friends, the podcast is a Herringbone Society production. so I can Google. <laughs> Google is God's gift to older people's memory. <laughs>